We got through the, the cold weather. Yes, the cold snap. What happens in Texas when it gets that cold? Uh, not much. Everybody just sits tight. So you have to layer up your jean jackets? And you wear two pairs of cowboy boots? Jean jackets? Hey everyone, welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we're going to dive deep on a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. Put your hands together, everybody. Here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. Thanks to Michael Vensky for that great introduction. As you guys have been hearing recently over the last couple of episodes, Michael Vensky has been doing the intro read for us. As you may know, Michael is an award-winning writer, actor, and wedding officiant. And he also works in the industry. You can learn more at michaelvensky.com. Just go there and jump out to his website, but thank you for that introduction. I am Chris Boyer, and once again, I am joined by my co-host, Reed Smith, on the other side of the microphone. Reed's from Austin, Texas, where it gets a little cold there in the winter. Not as cold as up here in Minneapolis. You can find out more about Reed at socialhealthinstitute.com and follow him on all of his social channels, Reed, parentheses, not a law firm. Smith. That's right. On Twitter. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the podcast, Reed. I haven't had to uh, dispense any legal advice this week. So far, so good in 2018. That is Chris Boyer, ChristopherBoyer.com, and at Chris Boyer on all the social channels. It's the new year. It's still a little bit cold, but it's warmed back up. So we, we've gotten past all our below freezing temperatures here in Central Texas. Well, we'll probably get over those in like the June time frame up here in Minneapolis. So That's crazy. Anyway, episode 49 read. Yes. About to turn the big 5-0, just like you just did. We got there a little quicker, though. So we're, we're coming up on our annual anniversary here in a couple of episodes. But next week, being episode 50, we would love to feature some uh, tips and advice that you might have for our listeners. And so if you have something, much like episode 20, just hit us up. You can record something, voice memo on your phone, and email it to us. You can uh, hit us up on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatnot. We can make sure we get that from you. Feel free to just send an email and we can just read it. Just whatever's whatever's most convenient. Some people have been posting ideas for topics. We'd love to hear those as well. Feel free to just, you know, use all of the social channels, including our new website. Oh, absolutely. So for those that have been listening over the better part of a year and you have visited the show notes that we uh, reference throughout each episode, that's been kind of hacked together at this point. And we felt like this was something to invest a little time and energy and effort into. And so we just uh, pulled the trigger, just launched the new website over at touchpoint.health. A little bit more to come on that as time goes, but stop over, check it out, let us know what you think. We're pretty excited about it. And, And you could submit a tip through there. You sure could. You could post comments to every episode. You can engage with us because we're all about engagement. Just check it out. Touchpoint.health. Hey, Reed, while people are out there, you know, surfing the web, maybe they should jump out to one of our sponsors websites, which is Loyal Health. Absolutely. Well, for most customers, the search for a healthcare provider is is frustrating. It's a maze. It's a a ton of choices out there. A lot of unanswered questions as you kind of make your way around the web. More often than not, they want to hear what other patients have to say in order to make a decision and certainly make a decision with confidence. Yeah, that's true. And Loyal has this solution. They call it Empower. It's a series of tools that help really empower patients to provide them a solution, find the right information through star ratings, which gives deeper insights into what patients are really saying, to sort, approve, publish patient reviews of physicians, services, and practices using some intelligent features like auto-approval and syntax highlighting. It's a really cool solution. And so if you want to make it easier for your patients to make decisions built on confidence. Check them out. It's uh, easy, fast, and great with your website, even with your uh, electronic health records. They'd love to show it to you. So to see it in action, schedule a demo, surf on over to loyalhealth.com. That's loyalhealth.com. Well, we want to thank them for being one of our sponsors. So, Reed, today we're going to be talking about putting the patient first in the digital strategy. Yeah, so speaking of patients making decisions. I remember I was at a conference a couple years ago 
where it was a, it was for digital strategists across multiple industries, and I was presenting about hospital digital strategy, which always makes me feel a little bit out of place because, as the adage goes, uh, hospitals traditionally are five to ten years behind every other industry. What was interesting when I was presenting at that conference is that we really aren't that far behind. Other industries were also lagging. We definitely have distinct different needs. But anyway, one of the things I was talking about is I, I actually came up with a quote that I think might set the table for today's conversation. Your hospital doesn't define your digital strategy your customers do. That's interesting. I think you're right. We're not we're not as far behind, or maybe not even behind. I think sometimes we look at other industries that are leading the charge, and compare to that, and that's again, that's not all bad either. But I think what you're talking about is looking at you know what the customer, or you know in this case maybe patient's expectation is online. What are they looking for? How do they want to be engaged with, and how do they want to participate? Versus you driving how you want people to participate. That really speaks to the root of the question is control. Like how much control are we putting customers, patients, or other customer stakeholders like physicians, whatever, in helping us define our strategies? I know that a lot of times that me as a digital expert, you as a digital expert, Reed, we have really great ideas about how to do things. But how often are we tapping into our customers to help us in the definition of what our actual strategy is? I, I would say very seldom, probably. You know, if I, if I think back or look at uh, what I, at least I've heard of other people doing, you know, th- there are such things as focus groups. And we've done that, you know, from a marketing communication standpoint, maybe it's, uh, you know, a perception study around our brand. Maybe you're starting an affinity group for women or 55 plus or whatever it may be. And so you've pulled together some folks to survey and kind of bounce ideas off of. Again, all good things, but I think that's probably the extent of what we've done at this point. And again, I'm I'm making some generalizations. I'm not saying people, you know, there aren't good examples out there mm-hmm. or, or, or maybe advanced examples out there. But I would say that's probably the, the common thread. And a little later on in this in this podcast, we're going to be interviewing ePatient Dave, where he talks about that. He's participated in a lot of these patient family advisory councils or PFACs, mm-hmm. right? And he says um, a lot of the times it's not really in an advisory capacity. It's more of a how are we doing? Pat us on the back kind of capacity. It's not really bringing them into the whole stage. And what's interesting about that, Reed, is is a concept that I, ca- I stumbled across a couple of years ago, which I think still holds true to this conversation, which is this whole idea of, quote unquote, new power. Have you heard of this concept, new power? No. What is that? It's from a Harvard Business Review article from a couple of years ago. And the best way to describe new power is to describe what old power or what existing power is like. Because old power is basically how organizations are looking at and thinking about their strategies. Let me give you some quotes from this. Old power is built on the concept that organizations can define their future state. Old power really works like a currency and it's held by a few, it's very valuable. And once it's gained, once this old power is gained, it's jealously guarded and powerful and people keep it close to our chest. It's very much a top-down driven, leadership-driven approach towards we understand the best strategies for what we're trying to accomplish and we're gonna implement it, but we're not gonna give a lot of transparency around that. And a lot of times people build their strategies around this concept of old power, where they say, you're the digital expert in your industry. You come in, you understand this space, define what we need to do from a digital perspective, and then we'll go out and do it. That makes me think of a lot of things, certainly healthcare, but the way that has historically worked. You've got people with certain levels of expertise, maybe certain levels of education, dealing with people that do not have those experiences necessarily. So the information kind of flows one way. Historically, you can kind of maybe point to uh, news or media outlets. And then with social media rolling around, how that kind of broke that up or changed the way that is maybe viewed. You see a lot of DIY with HGTV, for example. Before, if you wanted to remodel your home, you hired somebody to come do that. 
Well, now, you know, right or wrong, and I don't want to get into this argument, but with HGTV, we in, in Lowe's and Home Depot and those types of places, you know, we do it ourselves, right? Now, maybe to varying degrees of success, but in investments. I mean, you used to have to go get a stockbroker, you know, to do some of the... And now there's right. like a gajillion websites where you can do that yourself or whatever. So I think we're starting to see that in a lot of areas of our lives. That's right. That's right. And so that is the concept of what new power is. Institutional knowledge is no longer effective alone. It operates differently. Instead of it being like a currency where it's intelligence that comes patriarchally down a silo of information from very smart people in a boardroom, it's like a current. It's made by many. It's open, participatory, and a lot of times peer-driven. So think about like when we talk about Uberfication or we talk about Airbnb approaches, where you have these communities that are driven by many. And it's around this whole concept of distribution, like water or electricity. The mm. goal with New Power is not to hoard it, but to channel it so that it's powerful. Interesting. Okay. That's, that's cool. I hadn't really <laughs> ever thought about it that way. When you think about New Power versus Old Power... And you think about like social media and some of these other things that you were talking about, Reed, right? It's like this is a natural way that digital is driving the way we interact with organizations and the way we interact with others. And it's really starting to shift the way we as strategists have to start to think about defining our different various strategies, including our digital strategies. This goes back to that idea of what did the old hospital website used to look like um, or what type of care you were going to receive at the hospital or those types of things. Not that, not that it wouldn't word of mouth because there's always been that, but it was kind of if we wanted you to know something, we would, we would put that out there. It was a one-way communication channel. But now we have the tools where we can actually channel each other's conversations. We can channel the information that we're receiving and that we're sharing and others are participating in this as well. It's becoming a completely new thing. That trite term, paradigm shift. People say that a lot. I've heard paradigm shift quite a bit over the last six to eight years, probably. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, it's kind of like you say something enough and it like loses impact, I guess, you know, but it it is, it is what we're talking about here. I mean, this, this, we've completely changed the way patients participate in their care. So Thomas Kuhn came up with the term paradigm shift back in 62. And I think it's interesting for us to maybe because we always define it, this is what Wikipedia defines as paradigm shift, according to Thomas Kuhn. Advancement is seen as a series of peaceful interludes punctuated by intellectually violent revolutions. And in those revolutions, one conceptual worldview is replaced by another. Do you feel that's like what we've gone through? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we've we've gone through to some degree. What the information age or the internet has you know, opened up or allowed us to access... It certainly has. It's allowed us to do a lot of things, like to be more personalized, to be hyper-target people, to be disruptive, to be relevant, to use data, to drive decisions, to be able to measure customer satisfaction and customer preference, Mm -hmm. and then take that back into the things that we do. Naturally, this is really shifting the way we're starting to show up in terms of the definition of our strategies, which brings us to patience. It does bring us to patience. If you think about how you were a patient growing up, what did that look like? If you don't have anything out of the norm that you're having to go to the doctor for, let's say, your participation in your care was, what, back to school stuff occasionally? Maybe you got the flu once a year? I don't know. But basically you showed up. And, you know, depending on the size town you lived in, you probably went to the same doctor every year. Uh, They somewhat knew who you were. You kind of went in and you did this thing. It was very transactional and you left. Now, uh, whether you've got a chronic illness or something like that, that you've, you know, spent some years, months, years, you know, dealing with, that changes a little bit, obviously, or maybe a lot. But still, growing up, the ability to be able to do anything outside of that physical care setting was pretty limited. Like you didn't really do anything from home, so to speak, to take charge. It was a closed world, and and I remember I um, you know when I was a kid and I got diabetes, 
that the doctor gave me a bunch of pieces of paper to send me home. This is prior to everybody having access to the internet. That's all I had. That's all the information I had about my disease was that. Unless I would go to the you know, encyclopedia or, or oh, go yeah. to the library and do research, you know? Yeah, you can hit the World Book Encyclopedia. Or what was what was the other one? Uh, encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, so That's if, right. if you had one of those sets in your house, I guess you could go grab that one and it had three-fourths of a page of information. And you may you may or may not know someone you could talk to that also was dealing with the same thing. I can remember, I say I can remember, I can't remember, but when my brother was born, this is 1980, in a little town in Mississippi, a relatively small town in Mississippi, and uh, he has Down syndrome, and he was the only person anybody knew in town with Down syndrome. So when my parents had questions, what were they supposed to do? What were they supposed to do? They'd go to the doctor, maybe? Yeah. And maybe they would like go to a larger city where there may be other people? You could possibly go see a specialist in, in another town. You know, you know, they could talk to other people in town that were maybe special ed teachers. I mean, they didn't have any Down syndrome kids in their class, necessarily. I mean, a lot of this was just them figuring it out on their own. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. From where they were in 1980 to where someone is today that may be put That's in the right. same situation is completely different because think about the testing. Like my, my parents didn't know until he was born like because there was right. no testing prior to being on labor and delivery unit. Right. So you know they're all figuring out the fly. Now you've got a little time to prep for that. But all what we're talking about is how technology has increased the patient's role or, or allowed for the patient's role to increase, I guess I should say, in both the decision making and you know shaping their expectations. And we could put the, the blame squarely on the shoulders of technology because technology really allowed for information to be exchanged freely. And giving access to information that previously wasn't there before. In the olden days, you might have had these user groups or these small little chat rooms where you could talk to people back in the, on the internet. But with social media now, it's so easy to connect with people across the world. You can not only start to get information about your condition, you can get information about a variety of different factors that can impact how patients show up in that care setting. I think we've talked about it on here. Maybe you've even mentioned it of, or maybe Ed Bennett mentioned it. I can't remember, but you know, remember the early days of even the internet when you would search for something and there would be no results. Like right. you would type something into like, what was it like Alta Vista or something or and like literally it would come back with, I'm sorry, we couldn't find anything on that topic on the internet. That's just not possible now. So I don't care how rare the scenario is, the disease, the situation, you know, what it is, you know, the specificity of what you're trying to figure out, you can find something on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I guess I don't want to get into this argument necessarily, but that's maybe good and bad. In some right. cases, there's a lot of factors that are kind of driving this now. We're becoming more aware of how we could change our behavior to achieve different outcomes. I think things like Fitbits and, and other types of uh, medical devices can help us start to shift the way we track our care or the way we track our, our behaviors. There's a lot of uh, ability to have some transparency around pricing and more and more costs are being shifted to the patient. The industry is, is shifting as well to go towards a value-based approach. And all of these things are kind of driving the fact that patients are almost being forced to become more involved in their care. Technology is just giving them an easy way for them to do that. You know, maybe you've moved to a new town. You want to know, well, what's the best physician? Even if it's just routine stuff. If you were looking for a pediatrician or an OB-GYN or whatever it is because you've just moved to a new area, well, how do you know which one to go to? I would wager a guess that everyone turns to the internet 
to figure that out now. Where before you would have to wait till you met somebody and then felt comfortable with them and then asked them, you know, it was a much longer lead time. Right. Unless you were in a pretty small town, then obviously it was like, well, there's this one guy that does this one thing. That's where you went. But, you know, for the most part now, it's like we're looking to the Internet for everything from driving directions to movie times to what doctor to pick. And you could get that at virtually any time of the day anywhere from your phone, from your car, from, you know, from your voice activated device, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you can get that information. And the hard part is that we're bringing expectations from other industries that have been doing this for so long and so well into the healthcare setting. And so what that means is, is now we're starting to expect care solutions that are coordinated across multiple channels, that are easy to access, that are customized to be personalized. There's a lot of things that we're bringing into this space as patients that allows us to be more empowered and on the flip side, to be more bossy, I would say, right? Have higher expectations for the care that we wanna get. I wonder though, what's your thought on this? All right, so the internet's allowed us to be more active and more participatory in our care. I would make the argument that going back to the acuity of the reason we're engaging might at least it would in my mind or with me personally, it would probably weigh against my willingness to be open about that. I'm going to go kind of extreme here, but I guess my point is, is like if I'm dying and I have limited time to get something figured out, then I probably don't care about privacy or embarrassment or those types of things versus just something that, you know, uh, you know, how willing are we to be open with our health care, you know, where we are in our lives? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And that resonating with me because I remember way back when, 30 years ago, when I got diabetes, it almost was like a stigma. I didn't want to share that with anyone else. But I think that society has shifted now. And it may be that kind of shift towards the special snowflake syndrome that we have with this is our segment of the podcast where we bash millennials. But, you know, <laughs> we should we should have like music that we play underneath <laughs> that every time that happens. <laughs> Has to be Taylor Swift if we do. Oh, okay. my gosh. Um, <laughs> anyway, it may be that we're shifting more towards this sort of special snowflake kind of model where everybody's special and everyone's different. Everyone's unique. But really, mm-hmm. I think what's what's going on, though, is that our society mores are changing so that we are more open about our health care now. And so now I actually talk about my diabetes more openly than I did 10 years ago, but not because I'm proud of it or not because I want to be special about it, but because, quite frankly, there's more resources available. There's more experience. More people know about it. And it ends up improving myself and my education. Yeah. Do you think some of that is just kind of generational comfort levels? You know, we see some of these kind of fall to the side, right? So like you used to not talk about religion, politics, healthcare, uh, finances. You didn't ask people like, well, hey, how much did you pay for this car, you know, or this house or whatever, right? You know, and some of that stuff's starting to fall away. Is that part of it or is that just kind of a byproduct? I think it all comes together, Reed. You can't separate the wheat from the chaff on this one. I think the more open we've become, the more empowered we've become in certain cases. And in other cases, I guess the more filtered we've become too. The more information we have, the more empowered we can become. And the more empowered we become, the more information we seek out. I think it all comes together. I I, I think that the changes have led us this way. And you know, it's really hard to say that one doesn't go without the other. We're talking about, you know, the ability to find out more information. Talked about yeah. the online transparency pieces, whether that be pricing or financial transparency relative to healthcare, whether that be quality metrics, like how good is a physician, patient experience mm-hmm. type stuff, uh, outcome data. Uh, you know, we're, we're bombarded with the amount of data we can find. And that's not even about us specifically. That's just in general. How good's this hospital? Where do they rank? What awards do they win? What kind of data do they have published online? The physicians is a whole nother layer in and amongst that piece. That's a tough road to go down because I, you know, I feel like to what end? Is that helping me at the end of the day? 
I mean, I think it does. Yeah, that is a good question. I think it does too. I happen to be more of an advocate of sort of that e-patient kind of experience where you're more empowered, you're more engaged with your healthcare. And maybe we should define what e-patient is. We are going to be talking to the guy who actually took that name on and branded it yeah. as himself I later mean, on today. I mean, it is his name. I mean, that was that was <laughs> really interesting forethought of his parents, but that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. There's this whole concept of patients that are now e-patients or empowered patients that use short for empowered, not email. A definition of e-patient is an e-patient is a person that tries to participate fully in their medical care by gaining information, seeking advice, finding support about their condition via sources such as the intranet. And two, that can include their friends, family members, things like that, right? I mean, there, there could be sure. patient advocates, so to speak, which we, we see that as an actual role sometimes within hospitals. But these, mm-hmm. are, these are folks that do this kind of in their own lives. On behalf of themselves as patients or their family members as patients. Right. Not as a medical profession. So that's good, right? Doctors like that? I would say that more and more doctors are starting to see the value of that. I think that studies have come out that said that a patient that's more engaged in their health care tend to have better outcomes when they're dealing with a chronic disease or if they're you know, trying to solve an episodic medical issue. Patients that are more engaged and actively involved in being part of the solution, they tend to have better outcomes. But the question you have is, do doctors like it? If you ask a lot of physicians, again, I'm making tons of generalizations here, but uh, (laughs) in two, it's a two-way street, right? I mean, it depends on the patient, but it also depends on the physician. And I think this all goes back to the the reason for having the right physician and connecting with the right physician. Because the person that's right for me may not necessarily be the right one for you and vice versa. And these doctors have still gone to school for an awful long time. And I'm using doctors, but it could be could be therapists, could be dietitians, athletic trainers, you know, anybody in kind of a skilled trained role that has to do with our health. Physician is just an easy one to, to call out. They've been to school for a long time. They've done residencies, maybe fellowships. This has happened once to us, but you know maybe they've seen hundreds, thousands, whatever, of, of patients with the same thing. Where's the balance between the physician driving it 100% and Jenny McCarthy? <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. I mean, I think that's where we would like to see it all be. And I think that's where physicians are like. They want people to be engaged. They want you to do what's best for you, right? And we're seeing more and more doctors, and we know a lot of these doctors, that are embracing this sense of partnerships with with patients. Like Dr. V, Brian Vardabidian. He has a really good blog about that, 33charts.com. He wrote something about the fact that empowerment among patients is something that's really, really powerful but that it isn't necessarily just on the patient themselves to be empowered. It's the patient connecting and partnering with their care provider. To some degree, there's going to be a certain part of your care that a physician or somebody in a trained role is going to have to decipher or help mm-hmm. or guide. But some people don't want to be an e-patient. We have to figure out as providers, how do you participate in all these spaces? And how do you determine what a patient wants from their care Mm -hmm. or what a patient wants from their website or what a patient wants from their social media account with you? Whatever that digital Mm -hmm. touch point is, how empowered do they want to be? Some people want the information provided to them. Others want to be able to navigate and, and take a little bit more control. They find more value or worth from that. That's where we're driving here. So, you know, people are probably thinking like, what, what in the world does this have to do with marketing? To some degree, because of the way and the perception uh, of what people are thinking, you've got to understand who is it that you're trying to connect with. You know, there are some services, if you will, within a hospital that probably don't make a lot of sense to market to consumers. Right. Because if you're a consumer, even if you wanted to, you could not go consume that service. Then again, there are some things that are very consumer focused. You know, elective procedures is an easy one to call out where you could actually engage the patients online and help drive them towards making an appropriate decision or giving them the tools to make an appropriate decision. And there's a lot of other things that you do have to also know to, in terms of building out your personas, where you're located at. If you're delivering care 
in a marketplace like San Francisco or Seattle, where it's very highly technology communities, where the people are so used to, you know, they're spending all their times on these new devices, that community may have a higher expectation to be engaging with you with your healthcare through these devices. Whereas if you're, you know, in Southern Mississippi and there's a hospital that's right in your community town, maybe they don't need, you know, an Alexa device to sure. guide them to care. Yeah. And so much of it's maybe done through relationships they already have. We've talked a lot about what is an e-patient, how, you know, technology has changed the way we consume healthcare. Uh, through things mm-hmm. like transparency and, and other initiatives uh, that have made their way into technology. So how do we put patients first in our digital strategy when it makes sense? It's different for every different environment that you're in, obviously. Uh, it starts with having a clear understanding of what your patient's needs are or what their desires are and what their wants are. And by the way, your audience cannot be just patients. It's probably also providers. It's probably sure. also employees of your hospital. It could be a variety of different Uh, stakeholder groups that are around you. Once you understand that and understand how they show up with these digital channels and what their needs are, then you can start to think about what would a digital vision be? How do you start to use these tools in such a way that it could supplement their decision-making? So that's like digital marketing where you, you know, consideration, awareness, online transparency, all of those things can Mm -hmm. kind of fit in that fold. How do you facilitate digital access to care? Patient access is big important here. And then how do you facilitate digital in the use of that care during and after that care treatment? And then keeping that ongoing engagement. That really helps you to start to define a vision that puts patients first. Really what we've done is we've had to become, and this all goes back to, well, just about every topic we talk about, I guess, but the accountability of how we do marketing. Or because now it's a two-way conversation, two-way street, where you know we're engaging and talking with patients, caregivers, and I mean that from a clinical standpoint and from a, you know, maybe a family member or, you know, taking care of a parent or whatever caregivers. We're connecting with a lot of different people. Therefore, we have to have a lot of different messages and they want to be engaged at a lot of different levels. And so that adds a lot of complexity to the message, to the actions you want people to take. And it kind of goes back to that experimental and immeasurable kind of piece of the pie. Once you understand, like, this is the vision of where you want to go, one of the things Reed, that you have to really do is you have to look at yourself and look at your culture. A lot of hospitals and health systems don't have a culture that's conducive to being a digital first culture Mm-mm. or let alone a patient first culture. In digital cultures, they're very much experimental. They're very much like able to succeed quickly and fail quickly. And that's something we don't want to talk about when we're in healthcare. We don't like that failing part because to us, failure in healthcare has negative health results. It would seem to reason that it, you know the more patients are involved, not like the how are we doing stuff, but actually involved, then you can you know have new iterations you know quicker and quicker and move quicker and quicker. And that, you know, that test and learn approach works. Once you could start to embrace that internally, then you could start to look at ways that you could address a prioritized approach towards putting patients first in that digital strategy. So it could be you were, you're in an environment where the biggest challenge is making an appointment with a doctor. If that's the number one need, that is your prioritized first initiative. If you're in an environment where... Patients are not not you know having a problem accessing their tools online, but the support staff, the nurses, the, the the physicians themselves may be reluctant to use these digital tools. Maybe they don't even want online appointment scheduling. Then your priority focuses and shifts towards that. This is where it becomes nuanced. Just simply the idea that you're not going to get it right the first time and that a lot of people want different things, your willingness to participate in that way. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, You know, they've got a consumer experience platform that that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've, we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? 
That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to InfluenceHealth.com. Touchpoint. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! All right, here we are at Touch Point, Touch Counterpoint, and today talking about patience and patience being involved, what that looks like for your marketing strategy and specifically your digital marketing strategy because of all the tools and all that kind of fun stuff out there that have allowed patients to become a more active participant in their health. So today we thought we'd talk a little bit about do people really want to be an e-patient? Is that really a thing or is that just a really loud minority? Wow. I can't wait for e-patient Dave to listen into this and hear what he has to say about that. <laughs> I am going to take the side of the, the vocal minority then, I suppose, which I'm going to say is I do believe that we do want to be e-patients. All of us want to be e-patients. If we're involved in our care, as long as that information is easy to access, easy to translate, easy to empower us, we do want to be part of that. The reason why it's a vocal minority now is because we don't, frankly, make it easy for people to get all that information. So they say, I'd rather go the convenient route. So I'm, I'm going by our e-patient definition, which is a person that tries to participate fully in their medical care. So I would say the vast majority, if not everybody I know, minus a handful of folks, do not care anything about being an e-patient. Now, I'm not saying they don't want to get information on the internet. Like, that's not what I'm saying. And this goes back to the idea, look how hard it is to get people to adopt patient portals. Now, we could talk about usability of patient portals, but if the value is truly there, wouldn't people figure it out? Reed, you're putting cart before the horse here. You're saying if the value is really there, wouldn't they want it? Well, we got to make it valuable so that they can actually see the need for to want it. I mean, your patient portal example is a great one. If you make patient portals easy for people to use and access and get information and transact with their care, people will use it. If you make information online easier, people will become e-patients. They will become part of their care. The challenge is, is we don't do that right now. It's still so hard for us to be patients. And the healthcare industry still tends to shelter a lot of the important information we need to make good care decisions. Right. Yeah. But here's the thing, though. So all right, who's the who uses the healthcare system demographically? Like, well, who's our biggest user? 55 plus? I mean, is that fair? I don't know. I'm kind of I'm kind of grasping here a little bit, but I've always heard this, I guess. I don't have any stats in front of me, but the older you get, the more you use the healthcare system. I'm not saying that people don't have illnesses throughout their life, but the older you get, the more healthcare you need. They don't want to be e-patients. But that's not that generation. That's not what they do. Again, e-patient Dave is probably an exception than the rule for people that his age. There certainly is generational trends here at play. I agree with you on that. Older people are used to a system where it wasn't like that, where they weren't able to be more empowered and part of their care. They're used to showing up and having the doctor tell them what to do. So there is a generational thing here at play. But 100 years from now, all generations would, ha would have access to easy, convenient care, we hope, or easy, convenient information to support their care. And so therefore, what happens is, is it won't be a generational thing anymore. It'll be just how easy, how accessible, how usable is the experience. I mean, I guess. So I think the reason people back in, quote unquote, back in the day, just listen to their physician, did what they said, was because they had a relationship with their physician. And that can probably be traced all the way back to like house calls and that kind of thing. You probably knew your physician. You didn't move around the country as much and things like that. People grew up in an area, and so people in that area filled the roles of all the jobs in that area. Therefore, you knew your physician. 
and maybe I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but when your friend has an idea or, you know, the people, you know, you trust those people around, you know, do this, don't do that, whether it's healthcare or not. Mm-hmm. Now, technology's opened up this ability for us to now, you know, become better informed around all these ideas. So, I mean, I, but I still don't think we've caught up with the idea of, of owning our own health care. I don't think people want to do that. You're putting the blame on the person. Think about now how, how active people have become with purchasing products on Amazon. They're actively involved. They're looking. They're, they're engaged. Or pick any other industry where digital has transformed the experience to put the customer first. And therefore, it's become much more easier for them to be part of that experience. They're no longer not empowered or not engaged in their purchasing patterns. That's because the experience is better. I think the experience rules the day. If we would provide better experience in healthcare, people wouldn't be so lazy and lackadaisical around their care. They'd be more engaged and involved. Simple as that. Yeah, but this is the whole deal. That's like now every year I've got to answer all these questions about should I get the flu shot or not? <laughs> because now you know, we got everybody that's a freaking expert out there while we shouldn't get the flu shot. And what do we in healthcare do? Well, all the physicians say we should get a flu shot. We're defaulting back to the, the point of view of the physician that has all the training. Well, sure. They're super involved. They're power users of the healthcare experience. They're guiding us to that care, but they become more of a coach and a quarterback for us. We are taking the ball down the field. Well, okay, I'm going to break a break from character here. So first off, e-patient Dave has been a successful e-patient in his own life, probably for a number of reasons. One is personality. Right. Number two is the acuity of the illness. Again, I keep going back to that, but I've got to reason that like, what's the likelihood Reed is going to sign up for a patient portal? Probably not much. I'm not incentivized to. Thankfully, I don't have any real reason. As it stands today, this could all change this afternoon. But I don't have a reason today to engage the healthcare system on a regular basis. If I go to the doctor and they say, oh, hey, while you're here, do you want to get a flu shot? Sure. Or I'm going because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sick, you know, or it's an annual physical. I'm not a user of the system like some people are. Okay, listeners of the podcast that are in healthcare, duly note that Reed does not use a patient portal to engage with his healthcare. I just want to put that out there. Absolutely, I will. I will play no part in meaningful use. <laughs> I really do get what you're saying, but I think that we're colluding two things and we're maybe putting one before the other. I believe the experience can help rule the desire. I think that if it's a bad experience, people get soured on the experience and then therefore they walk away from it. But if they're given a better experience, then they're going to become more empowered and it's going to give them more information. I really do believe that. But you are indeed right, Reed. If you do not have a heavy incentive to be part of it, why would you be, right? If you're not in the market to buy a refrigerator, why would you buy a refrigerator now? Yeah, and two, I, I think you know we're probably discounting people's motivation, and I mean personal motivation or even personality to some degree. Because you look at, and sports is an easy example, you, know, you can look at a quarterback that has all the tools in the world and why was he not successful? A good example is Drew Brees, the place for the Saints. You know, he's shorter than all the other quarterbacks. And he's not supposed to be an NFL quarterback, and he's super successful. Why is that? And then you take somebody like Ryan Leaf, that prototype quarterback, has all the tools, you know, worst player in history. You know, I know a lot of people that are involved in their health, their health care, and because of their personal motivation and just the way they are in life, they're going to be an active participant I guess it's hard to determine who's going to be empowered or not. But if I were a hospital or health system, I would err on the side of trying to appeal to that empowered patient, that e-patient, because that certainly will help you in the long term become a true partner of that patient's care. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of our podcast. And today, Reed and I have been talking a lot about putting the 
patient first in, in our digital efforts. And when we think about putting patients first and we think about empowering patients, one of the persons that my mind always turns to is a gentleman that I've known for many years now, and that is Dave DeBroncard. Dave, I am so proud and excited to have you as part of our podcast today. Well, likewise. I mean, you guys are the gurus, I think, of the next phase of my outreach to the public. I am really looking forward to learning from you and sharing knowledge together. You have made a name of yourself in this space. And in fact, that's kind of how when I think of you, I don't think of you as Dave. I think of you with the other name, which is ePatient Dave. I've been a marketing and communications professional for my whole career. I worked in high tech, particularly in graphic arts, as that field got digitized. I understand messaging. I understand how ideas can travel. And I've been online since 1989, back on CompuServe in the pre-web days. 11 years ago, I discovered out of nowhere that I was almost dead. And I mean, my median survival at diagnosis was 24 weeks. And in fact, 28 weeks later, my treatment had completed and I had survived. And you know, I, I felt like I'd been in a video game that was about to say game over. And instead it said free replay. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I started a blog called The New Life of Patient Dave. And two months later, my primary physician, the famous Dr. Danny Sands, said, Dave, I'm a member of this group of people who get together once a year and think about the future of medicine. And uh, we'd like to invite you as our guest this year. And he sent me a link to the white paper that they had just published, a manifesto. It, it was about e-patients, empowered, engaged, equipped, enabled. And that precisely modeled how I had been in response to my cancer diagnosis, I hadn't sat back and watched everybody do things to me. I was as actively involved as I possibly could be, including joining an online patient community. And I was just actively involved instead of acting like I'm a car in a car wash. I rebranded myself, you could say, on my blog. I changed it from the new life of patient Dave to the new life of e-patient Dave. And I had no idea it was going to become a big thing. To me, it was just going to be my internet nickname. You are known, it's synonymous now with this movement of the empowered patient, yet you're not the only one doing this. It's funny because a large part of marketing and marketing communication obviously involves understanding how the brain works, how the mind works. When you are trying to change people's concepts about something fundamental in their world, like in my case, it's the role of the patient. If people's paradigm says doctors have the training to know what's worth knowing about medicine and patients don't, mm -hmm. then your expectation will be that the appropriate behavior for a patient is to act like a car in a car wash. You roll up the windows and you drive through and you get things done to you. I show up and start telling this story of how my oncologist says he's not sure I'd be alive today if I hadn't been so involved in my care. That clashes with the established model. The first thing that happens is people say, well, that can't be true because it just doesn't fit. The second thing that happens is they say, well, okay, that's true, but that's just one anomalous example. It doesn't prove anything. But it turns out we are all over the world. We are a previously undetected population that medicine is slowly learning to recognize really exists. If it were only me, then we could not call this a social movement. There have been so many ways now that patients can become more involved and more educated in their care. Social media and technology, that there are so many tools now that allow patients to become more involved in their care. Tell us a little bit about your perspective on that. A generation ago, it was far safer, it was a far better approximation of reality to say that patients had no access to the information that might save their life. In fact, that manifesto that I mentioned, the opening anecdote is 1994 at a hospital in New Jersey, a gentleman who needed a knee replacement hobbled his way up the steps of a medical library and basically got busted 
for picking up a copy of a journal article, the only article that had ever been published about the surgery that he was about to get. He was busted for impersonating a doctor by wanting to see this. Hmm. The flow of information today is profoundly different from what it was back then. We not only have access to information, you know, the, the medical literature, mm-hmm. both the peer-reviewed journals and the so-called gray literature, but we also have the ability today to connect with other people who are in our boat. And you can think of this as affinity groups and relationships would form and we would develop as a community a shared perspective in ways that were never possible before the internet now let us connect with each other. Because it used to be that there was no way for me to find out things about stage four kidney cancer, in my case, without going through my doctor. Today it is. And in the old days, the only source of useful information in my treatment was through my doctors. As it happens, the treatment that I got usually doesn't work, and sometimes the side effects kill people, but it was my best shot. I asked my oncologist, how do I prepare to cope with the side effects? Mm -hmm. He said, that's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked us that. So I turned to the patient community, and I got a whole bunch of information. None of it would qualify for the peer-reviewed literature, but as it happens, my oncologist believes that that helped me save my life. Tell us a little bit about your perspective of social media's role in all of this. My work in technology, I ended up working with a lot of people in engineering. So I learned some wisdom about IT. Information lives in different people's heads and books and so on. But the technology that it can now ride on allows it to move in ways that were not possible a generation ago. We can think about this abstractly, like I'm shopping for a car. I want to get some information on car ratings or what's the best best TV model and so on. But when you are dying, the idea that there might be some knowledge out there that has not found its way to you or your doctor is highly motivating. And consider now, this is quite analogous to that gentleman in New Jersey who was seeking information about the treatment he was about to get using the internet, actively locating information that hasn't even been published. One of my aphorisms, as a marketing guy, I like aphorisms, is we all perform better if we're informed better. My point is that when people have access to additional information, the range of their potential contributions increases. It's not just a social movement where people argue for patients' rights or something like that. Reality has changed. And anyone who doesn't know that is going to be behind the times and they'll be at a competitive disadvantage. I do believe fundamentally that knowledge does empower people to make better decisions. But in healthcare, it's really a partnership between you and the larger provider organization. So how do you see hospitals, doctors, health systems starting to take the voice of the patient into their care So this is a a multi-level question Mm -hmm. with multiple levels of answers. In the health policy journal, Health Affairs, February 2013 was their special issue titled The New Era of Patient Engagement. And there was an article in there authored by AIR, the I think the American Institute for Research, where they talked about a multidimensional model here. The patient on one axis moving from passive to actively involved in all aspects. So you can imagine a patient who comes into a clinical visit and they just sit there and they answer questions and they do as they're told or they nod their head knowing that they're not really going to do it anyway, or all the way on up the level to maybe asking some questions and thinking. And really, at the high end of the scale, what you get is the patient who considers themselves to be the captain of their ship medically, or as some people say, the CEO of my own health. Mm -hmm. So I'm the CEO and I hire contractors and experts like my physicians. Mm -hmm. Now, the sociological thing that's the direct answer to your question is if the doctors are rejecting that, here's the the famous line from House MD and many real-world doctors, who's the one with the medical degree here? In that case, 
that patient may feel empowered, but actually has no authority. Hmm. They have no influence over the course of their care. So this is quite analogous to the women's movement where a woman may start to have an opinion, perhaps in an area where when she was growing up, she didn't know that a woman could have an opinion. They might start to express themselves and what happens next depends heavily on whether the man that she's talking to is interested in what a woman might have to say. It, it is a new dance. In fact, I think it was September of 1999, the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, had a cover about patient-clinician partnership. And it was this gorgeous photo of a, a couple doing a tango. Beyond the clinical level, you find patients starting to get involved in running the hospital. And this starts with patient advisory councils. Once again, they can start as the patient comes in and the hospital feeds them milk and cookies and says, here are the wonderful things we're doing. Mm -hmm. The patient has no authority, no power. They're just treated as a guest. Then as you move up from there, they might say, so what do you folks think about what we are doing? At the far end of the scale, patients and the community are truly helping to run the hospital, the real partners with some authority. And then the same pattern exists just at the other level of redesigning the entire health system. And we're starting to see that at the federal level with the FDA's patient engagement initiative. I hear people saying they are doing a really good job of listening and working with patient opinion leaders. One really tangible, easy thing for people to do technologically, by the way, that I don't want to miss out on is at the clinical level, that first level I described, your relationship with your doctors is this movement called open notes, where they flick a switch in the computer and let you see not just your lab results and such, but you can actually read the notes that your doctors and nurses write to each other. Then you are an actual involved patient who knows what's going on, and you can go in and check notes between visits and so on. In the old school view, where patients couldn't possibly have any use for such information, they don't see any point in doing that. But in the new view, there I mean, there's over, I think it's like 10% of U.S. adults now, 20 million people have access to their visit notes with open notes. And it's not a commercial software product. It's, That's great. Some of us listening may want to explore that even further. All you got to do is ask your doctor for open notes. And it's important to do that because if nobody asks, then they commonly will say, well, my patients aren't asking for this. So Dave, if you look in the future... And, you know, envision what the future state of healthcare delivery model would be. And we're, we're in the business right now. A lot of people are legislating ways to revamp the health system. But from your perspective, what do you see as the future state of healthcare with that e-patient, such as yourself, being in the center of that? What does that look like? It's called participatory medicine. And it's about patient-clinician partnerships. My doctor and his buddies who wrote that manifesto and I, in 2009, created a society for participatory medicine that is, it's been sleepy, but this past fall, we had our first face-to-face -face concert, and we really lit the place up. It was just terrific. At the end of the, this one-day conference, we got a standing ovation. It is where patients and clinicians share the work. It involves patients and clinicians behaving differently, obviously. That's the world that we're moving to, and it will surely allow us to home in more efficiently on producing value as defined by the person who has the problem. It's funny, increasingly, I think this first showed up prominently in end-of-life care, where it came to be accepted that in decisions in the last decade, years, or months of life, the right thing to do is no longer comes out of a peer-reviewed journal article. It starts with a conversation asking the patient, what matters to you? What are your goals for your care? And it's funny because I've heard stories of doctors who ask that of their patients, and the patients say, well, I don't know. You're the doctor. You tell me. 
It's a social change. I am better informed now because of apps and devices. I have a Fitbit that counts my steps and measures my sleep. It's not precise about anything, but it lets me know what's going on. Three years ago, I got diagnosed as pre-diabetic, pre-type 2 diabetes. I tried just wishful thinking, and it didn't change my behavior. Mm -hmm. So I got into the YMCA's diabetes prevention program and started using my apps. I lost 30 pounds in four months, and I've since become a runner and lost another 10 pounds, partly because I got it into my skull over a period of years. As one doctor said in his speech at a conference where I spoke, there's nothing I can do for you that's as important as what you can do for you. Patients are more aware, involved, and physicians welcome it. I'll leave you with one punchline. It's really ironic because what I hear people at these hundreds of events I've gone through is I've, I hear people saying, it's so hard to get patients engaged in their care. Well, what they're usually talking about, it's hard to get patients to follow instructions that somebody else gave them. It's what they call compliance. If it starts with me setting a goal for myself. Here's what's important to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's important for me to be reasonably healthy and not have to work too much. Well, if things are not going well, then all of a sudden I share the goal. And if I succeed, I think of it as achievement, not me obeying somebody else's instructions. The punchline I want to leave you with is consider people say it's hard to get patients engaged and yet, if I'm Googling a symptom, it means I'm engaged in my care. I'm trying to learn more. What I want is for my clinicians to teach me how to be better at it so that I can be more effective on my own and waste their time less. So I want every provider out there to be thinking, what can we do to empower, to improve the competence of people in the community so that everyone who walks in that clinic door is a more effective partner with the clinicians. Dave, this conversation has been really fascinating and also inspiring. If people want to know a little bit more about you, what's the best way for them to follow you online? Well, I'm a marketing guy, you know, so guess what my Twitter handle is? ePatientDave. Guess what my URL is on Facebook? It's ePatientDave. How try LinkedIn, try Skype, and guess what my website is? ePatientDave.com. Curing stage four kidney cancer or type two diabetes is complicated, but a consistent brand is not. Thank you, Dave, for being part of this interview and, and sharing all your great ideas with us. Chris, good news. The healthcare industry now has its own domain name. What? Absolutely. Everybody knows that organizations have .org, education has .edu. Well, now .health is available and quickly becoming the home for all health-related content online. And listeners to our podcast can visit git.health slash touchpoint. Visit git.health slash touchpoint now. Well, Reed, here we go. We're wrapping up the end of episode 49. We want to thank uh, Dave DeBroncard, otherwise known as ePatient Dave, for his insights and the history of him becoming the ePatient that we all know him to be today. And it was a good conversation we had today around how to make patients first in your digital strategy. So, yeah, we got the number one ePatient in the country. So, yes, <laughs> there you did. go. Yes, we did. Uh, well, it was a good topic, and I think there's more things we can get into there, and we can probably get into more of the actual tactical pieces of you know, engaging patients in your digital strategy in one of the future episodes. And so this was us trying to kind of set the stage for that, um, and mm -hmm. again, more to come there. Be sure to check out the new website, touchpoint.health. Yeah, we're just kicking off the new year. So what uh, what what recommendation do you have? I'm going to recommend something I got for Christmas, which is really cool. Have you ever heard of the website Atlas Obscura? No. What is that? Atlas Obscura is a website done a couple of guys that I guess like to travel. In their travels, they started to figure out interesting, new, weird things. And so many years ago, they created a blog. Interesting. 
called Atlas Obscura, uh-huh. where they just talked about different things that are that they found in their travels across the world because they they literally travel the world, they traverse the world. It's a really fascinating website and blog. If you haven't been there, go out to it, atlasobscura.com. Uh, they put together a book that was a, a pretty good seller this this last holiday season. And I got a copy of it under the tree, and I was really excited about it. It's the Atlas Obscura book, An Explorer's Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders. And so there's a lot of things in here. I'm I'm just opening up the page randomly to a page. Uh, It looks like this is the section around Asia and the Middle East. There's a place in uh, Jerusalem that's called the Museum of Underground Prisoners. Wow. Once a hostel for female pilgrims staying in the Russian compound, the 19th century hub for Russian Christians who journeyed to Jerusalem, this building became the city's central prison when the British took control of the mandatory Palestine uh, in 1920. And then for 28 years, it was a place where the Jewish underground resistance rebelled back against the British occupation. And eventually when Jerusalem became its own country, they uh, turned this into a museum for underground prisoners. Now, that's just happens to be one of the many different things that are in, in this great book. It's almost like an encyclopedia book, referring back to what we talked about earlier in the podcast, of just interesting things that are happening all around the world. So the Atlas Obscura book, if you're into books, if you're not into books, go out to atlasobscura.com. Very interesting. Yeah, I was just looking at uh, Austin, Texas here. There's some interesting, uh, you know, on the community picks side, they got the Museum of the Weird, Cathedral of Junk, and Common Objects, the bats underneath the Congress Bridge. So all the stuff people think of when they think of Austin. Weird stuff. So this is really interesting. So I'm going to have to spend a little bit of time with this. A little bit of time. So yeah. I'm going a little generic uh, but I'll also be specific as well. My recommendation is um, something that everybody should have. Uh, you and I both actually have one, or maybe more. An acoustic guitar. Hmm. Everybody should get an acoustic guitar. You know, learn how to play a few chords. It's just kind of nice to have. It's something that at least I have found that when I'm playing the guitar, I can't think about other things. Does that make sense? It does. So you focus so much on it that you don't think about anything else. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're thinking about the song, whether you're singing or not, but you're thinking about the song or the chords or, you know, whatever. You know, just the ability to kind of pick something up and, you know, tactically do something with your hands and have your mind kind of disconnect. Uh, and maybe that's true for other musical instruments. I don't know how to play any other musical instruments than the guitar. But And you want the acoustic guitar. I mean, electric guitar is fine, don't get me wrong. Uh, but that requires, you know, electricity and an amp and all that kind of stuff. So, and plus you get some, you know, much more portable. So, and plus you can get like a three-quarter size, which are great for kids, but it's also great to uh, tote around as well. And if you if it, if that's too big, why don't you just go for a ukulele, right? You could always do the ukulele, man. Or if if people if you maybe maybe if you know how to play the guitar, but you're like I'm not sure how to play the ukulele, you could certainly look up videos online and, and probably figure it out if you can play the guitar. However, you can go with and I do this for my son when he first started taking guitar lessons because I wanted something small. Was a gitalele, which is a six string ukulele, uh, and you can play it like a guitar. So th- this is like three recommendations in one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it's been a good episode, and we certainly want people to connect with us. Go out to touchpoint.health to do that, or any of the social channels. Let us hear from you over the next week about what tips you might have that maybe even you're going to try for the first time here in the new year. We'd like to feature those on episode 50. He is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you then. 